Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Bishop Shelton Fobb. Bishop Fobb was Bishop of Huma Thibodeau in Louisiana from 2013 to 2022 and an Auxiliary Bishop of New Orleans from 2006 to 2013. He is the chairman of the U.S. Bishops Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism. And in February 2022, the Holy Father, Pope Francis, named him Archbishop of Louisville, Kentucky. I am so excited that we are getting the opportunity to speak to really the second Archbishop in the United States who is a Black man. I mean, this is an amazing appointment. He'll be the fifth Archbishop of Louisville, Kentucky. And at a time where our country is dealing with so much racial tension, racial hostilities, resistance even within the Catholic Church from some Catholics to acknowledging that racism is a sin, the fact that our own son, you know, Bishop Shelton Fobb, a Black Catholic, is going into the Southern Diocese as its leader, as its head, signals a lot to the American church. And in particular, I would say to Black Catholics, it reminds us that Jesus's church is our church too. At a time where many of us have been feeling excluded, left out, or even facing hostility because of issues of racial justice, this again, I think the Holy Father points out that no, this is your church too. There's a place here for you. And I'm placing this son of the church in this archdiocese for a reason, for the good of the church. In faithfulness to serve Christ, he put Bishop Fob there. And so I take it as a sign of hope, as a recognition of the importance of Black Catholics, of the need for the continued battle against the sin of racism because of Archbishop Fobb's position in the Ad Hoc Committee Against Racism, because of his work across the country in addressing racism and speaking to it from the position of a Catholic and helping people understand that this is a grave sin. And foundationally, as Catholics, we oppose it because it is against God's plan for humanity. It's against human dignity. And so he's sounding this voice in a place that already has so many tensions in Louisville, Kentucky. We have to remember Breonna Taylor in March of 2020 that the Louisville Metro Police Department officers shot and killed Breonna Taylor. Who was she? An unarmed Black woman, daughter, emergency room technician. She was in her home. They were executing a search warrant and they shot her and killed her. People say it was a no-knock warrant. What chance did she have? So her death coupled with the deaths of other Black persons, including the murder of George Floyd, at the hands of law enforcement officers. I mean, the protests and conversations nationwide about systemic racism and extrajudicial police violence against people of color is just at a very high level. And so he's walking into that. He's walking into that situation in Kentucky, bringing the voice of the church, bringing the voice of Jesus around the dignity of the human person. Coupled with that, we also have in the Catholic milieu specifically, in the archdiocese, the issue of the demolition of the birthplace of Daniel Rudd. Who was Daniel Rudd? He was a formerly enslaved person 
who became a noted Black Catholic journalist, founder of the National Black Catholic Congress, advocate for equality and rights for Black people, and a fierce evangelizer of the Black community when, unfortunately, our own bishops had ignored pretty much the newly emancipated. He went among, as a layman, among Black people to say, hey, give the Catholic Church a chance. Her teachings are true. And this house has been demolished. The historical significance of this Black Catholic and the home was demolished for Bethlehem High School to make expansion. That is another area of tension in the diocese where Bishop Fob is going. And so even aside from all that, these kinds of changes for anyone would be difficult. And if, as you listen to him and listen to his voice, you hear what a gentle soul he is. And he has asked for our prayers just for the transition. He didn't even mention any of these difficulties, but just for the transition, he's asked for our prayers for not only the archdiocese, but also for the diocese that he's leaving in Huma Thibodeau, for the people there, for the people in the archdiocese of Louisville, and for himself, that Jesus's message and voice will be heard, that conversions of heart will happen. And we know already, going in just from those two elements that I'm mentioning, and there are many more, how much he does need our prayers, how much the diocese, the archdiocese does need our prayers. And so we'll be offering those for him. And I'm hoping that you will, listening to this conversation, get a better idea of who he is and who he will be as the Archbishop of Louisville, Kentucky. Stay with us. At America Media, we're committed to hosting real conversations at the intersection of the church and the world. We do it every day, online, in print, in podcasts, in videos. And we've just released a new documentary on our YouTube channel that tells the story of an historic Black Catholic parish in Cleveland, Ohio, that had to fight to stay open amidst parish closures and clustering. I watched the documentary. It's quick. It's a quick documentary, but boy, is it packed with so much information. And what a testimony to the people involved who didn't give up and walk away, but instead really argued to make the case for why their parish needed to remain open. I think it's something interesting that every Catholic should watch. I think it's something that maybe when you watch it, you could ask yourself, what would I do? How would I have been able to approach that? What kind of prayer life would I need to have undergone that? And this is the kind of content that America is producing every day. Things that have you ask the question about your faith. Ask yourself, what would you do? How would I need to convert? What is this inviting me to consider in light of my faith? And we need to support these kinds of discussions, this kind of content. And the best way to do that is by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. Stick around. My conversation with Archbishop Fobb is up next. So Archbishop, I have to ask this question, and I know you're probably like, oh my gosh, you hear this question all the time. But I just think it's really important for people to hear this from you to know. I mean, I know you had been appointed an auxiliary in New Orleans. Of course, you're currently 
you had Huma Thibodeau, but I'm really curious as to how you found out, like what was your reaction to finding out you're going to be appointed the Archbishop of Louisville, Kentucky? Well, the papal nuncio called me to let me know that the Holy Father had appointed me the next archbishop of the Archdiocese of Louisville, and I am grateful to the Holy Father. I want to serve where he desires that I serve, and I know that, you know, the Holy Spirit is active in our lives through the Pope, and I'm happy to go to Louisville. I'm happy to make Louisville my home, but you asked me, Gloria, what was what were my feelings? Naturally, my heart immediately went to the wonderful people here in Homa Thibodeau, because Homa Thibodeau has been my home for the past eight and a half years. And I've journeyed with the wonderful, wonderful people on these bayous whose faith is so strong and whose hope is rooted in Jesus Christ, particularly now as they recover. From Hurricane Ida, you know, I have to mention, I know that it's fallen off of the national scene, but coastal Louisiana, particularly the Diocese of still are recovering from the devastation of Hurricane Ida. So my heart immediately went out to those people. But I think that two things, I have absolute trust in the lay and clergy leadership in this diocese, that the recovery from Hurricane Ida will continue. It's not about me. It's about getting the people what they need, and it's about Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt that the leadership here in the Diocese of Pomatibodo will continue to provide that. So that's where I am right now, happy and excited looking forward to going to Louisville, yet at the same time, I'm also recognizing what the Lord is calling me to let go of. Mm, That's important. And it's such a wisdom that he's saying, okay, I want you to let go of this to take care of this over here. Well, I mean, you are leaving Louisiana altogether. And I'm thinking your first appointment as a bishop was as an auxiliary in New Orleans. So I'm wondering how New Orleans helped prepare you being when you first became a bishop in New Orleans. How do you believe that's helped prepare you for now going to be the Archbishop in Louisville? Mm-hmm. Well, New Orleans is an archdiocese, which means it's a larger diocese. Homer Thibodeau is a very small, very faithful Southern diocese. So simply, you know, the size of the archdiocese of New Orleans and the number of parishes and the number of Catholics, I think is one way that I was prepared for Louisville. I think the second way is that I had the absolute pleasure of working with two wonderful archbishops of New Orleans, Archbishop Alfred Hughes and Archbishop Gregory Amon, mm-hmm. who are men of the church who desire to serve the needs of people. And interacting with them and learning their pastoral style with such a large responsibility, I also think prepared me for the Archdiocese of Louisville, so the two archbishops that I served with. The other thing, Gloria, is wherever I have gone, Mm -hmm. I always remember I am there to share and to teach the people. But I also remember that equally important that people have something to teach me. Mm. So the different cultures and the different people and the resiliency of the people of the Archdiocese of New Orleans, they also taught me a lot about what it means 
to stay faithful and to believe even though your life goes off in a direction that you didn't expect, like a hurricane destroys your home. Right. It might also happen here in Homo Thibodeau. It's also just, you know, I, I can't do it alone. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the Archbishop yeah. could not do it alone, and none of us really can do it alone. We're all in this together. So just a reminder that it's not all about me. It's about me and Jesus Christ and yeah. all of us together as we attempt to accomplish what God is asking us. So, you know, it's interesting when you say all of us together, and I'm thinking about what is happening in the church right now regarding the current moment of dealing with racism and, frankly, some solid pushback against the church's move to really talk about racism, particularly in the United States, and then how that affects, in particular, Black Catholics who, according to a Pew Research survey, addressing racism is a very important part of the faith. And yet, some, out of frustration or in reaction to how they have been treated in their parishes, in particular at this time, regarding issues of racism in the country. Some people are getting frustrated. Some people are finding being a part of the parish or attending mass an occasion of sin because of the either hostility that they're facing um, regarding issues of racism or that the matter is just completely ignored, that there are some Black Catholics that are so frustrated they're leaving the church. So I'm hearing us, you know, that we're in this together and it's a hard thing for some people. So how do we work with this? What do we do? Because I'm just wondering what thoughts you have on this. Yeah, you know, as you said, you know, dealing with racism, the work, as I have said before, is hard, it is slow, and it requires a lot of us. I would say to Black Catholics, two things. Number one, we have been a very, very faithful people and have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is part of our culture. So the first thing that I would say is do not allow the humanity, the human sin of the church to blot out who it is that we believe and who comes to us, Jesus Christ. So make that distinction. That's a very important distinction to remember. The second thing that I would say is, and I know we've been doing this a long time, but we have to remember that part of it is to love something that is divine and perfect in its foundation, but as I said, because of its human sin, is flawed. We mm. know how to do that, and we have to do that, because if we don't know how to do that, then we can't love our family members, because no one is perfect. And, you know, we have to learn how to love something that is not perfect. And I'm talking about the humanity of the church, not the foundation of the church. Right. The third thing that I would say is to be faithful, to not be afraid to enter into those courageous conversations about race in the church. It is hard and it is slow, but I think that this is a watershed moment for our country and a watershed moment for our church. And I think we do, in constructive ways, have to call one another to accountability. We have to call one another and challenge one another to be the disciples of Christ that Jesus calls us to be. The final thing that I would say to Black Catholics is very, very often people don't know how to talk about racism. It's a very uncomfortable 
topic. And if they have not done it before, perhaps a different approach might be to go to their parish, to go to their pastor and simply say, Father, I want to help us to discuss this. Mm-hmm. And here is how I can help us do this. And then to take people through small steps that lead to larger steps with regard to those courageous conversations on race. So I don't deny, and you are correct, I know that people are frustrated. I know that people are disappointed. I know that people even have what I will call a prophetic anger. But I am asking them in those ways to stay with us, to allow the Eucharist to strengthen us for the task that is ours, and to do what we can at this moment where I think we have a very, very opportune time to invite people into those conversations. So stay faithful. Remember, we are loving something that we know is flawed in its humanity. To also say, you know, perhaps you don't know how to do this. I want to help you to do that. So those would be three things that I would say African-American to Black Catholics. And then finally, you know, very often people don't utilize enough just prayer, praying for the grace, praying for courage, praying for the strength to do those three other things and then see what God will bring forth. You know, when you mentioned prophetic rage, I think that's such a beautiful phrase to use to describe how probably so many of us are feeling when we see the kinds of negative reactions or dismissal of this grave sin of racism. But I'm also curious to know if any of that prophetic rage came out in the listening sessions that you held across the country for people to talk about racism. Did any of that come out or was there anything in particular that struck you, whether it was the reactions to the testimonies that people gave, other people's reactions or your own reaction, or just anything that struck you about those listening sessions that you'd like to share? The thing that struck me about the listening sessions, and unfortunately the pandemic kind of stopped us from hosting them, and I'm really hoping that very soon the listening sessions will come back. There are two things that struck me. Number one is the great pain, pain and hurt that came out of the listening sessions, not only from Black Catholics, but from Hispanic Catholics, Native American Catholics, Asian Catholics, Pacific Islanders, the pain that they felt in the church because of the evil and sin of racism. The second thing that I remember was the enduring faith of those who spoke, who said, this is my church and I am not leaving. My church has hurt me, but this is my church and I am not leaving. And I am here today because I want to help the church to begin to take the steps to rid the church of the evil and sin of racism. So the pain and the hope that they have for the church. You know, as I hear about the listening sessions, one of the things that I think about is to go and listen to someone else's pain, I should hope awakens something in somebody. And so this reminds me of the term woke, which unfortunately in some areas of the church, people use the term derisively. But for me, And being among other Black people, not just Black Catholics, when we use the term woke, we mean awakened to the injustice or suffering of another. And these listening sessions, I hope, 
do that, right? That you're listening and awaken to the sufferings of another, which moves you to want to do something about it. But I'm curious because I've seen just at all levels in the church, in all areas, you know, this talk of wokeism and maybe in a way that's not positive or maybe don't understand it, or in some areas, yes, they understand it. But I'm just curious as a bishop yourself, how do you understand wokeism? What do you think about it? I think, you know, Gloria, to these questions of race, we as Catholics bring the teachings of the church and who we are as a Catholic. And you are absolutely correct when you said, you know, for us as Catholics, being awakened is probably a better term. It's far less, you know, loaded. And I mean, awakened by the Holy Spirit, awakened by the Holy Spirit to the pain and suffering of another, an awakening that comes from hearing that person's story, but not only hearing it, that's one side of it, but also allowing it to change me. You know, there was a priest who once said, I cannot say that I'm truly listening to someone unless I can accept the fact that I may be changed by what I hear. It doesn't mean I will be, but it means that I'm open to that. So I think it's an awakening that not only leads us to an identification with regard to the pain and suffering of another, but also leads us to do something about it. Mm -hmm. The best of our ability to allow the spirit that has awakened this in our hearts to make us instruments of Christ's healing and peace and instruments of God's justice that bring about a change that to the best of our ability seeks to respond to that suffering of another. So I know the phrase woke is out there and that has many, many, many meanings. And I'm not going to comment on that. I'm simply saying from the perspective of the Catholic Church, I think you're right. I think it's more an awakening by the Holy Spirit to the pain and suffering of another that leads me, as Pope Francis so wonderfully says, to accompany that person and to encounter that person and then to do something to the best of my ability, to respond to the human dignity that I see and to love as Jesus loves. We'll be back in a minute. So, Your Excellency, one of the things I think, too, sometimes happens when we talk about racism and we talk about justice is sometimes Catholics assume that means that there's nothing to be done in the temporal order in terms of the law, in terms of business practices, in terms of basically the culture, and that all we need to do is pray. And I think there's a misunderstanding there because where injustice expresses itself, where this evil of racism has acted in our country, has impacted laws, has impacted business practice, has impacted the military, you know, has impacted the culture, right? How would you advise people that are saying, you know, we only need to just pray and live as Christ told us to live and that's it. We shouldn't be involved in these other secular things. How do you address that? I would say that, yes, our prayer should lead us to action, and our actions must always be guided by prayer. The two have got to go together. Yes, we do pray, which gives us guidance and direction, but that prayer has to lead us to act. 
Mm. And our actions must be based in our prayer. And again, we do that, you know, certainly we are involved, the ad hoc committee against racism in policy review and in laws. But I want to make this distinction, Gloria, that we have to, yes, continue to be acting with regard to policy and with regard to laws. But here's the thing. You know, the Pontifical Council for Peace and Justice said that laws, and I'm paraphrasing them, laws have an important role to play in overcoming racism, but laws will not change the human heart. Right. And open wide our heart goes into that. You know, there also needs to be a conversion of heart because laws alone have a role to play, but laws alone will not accomplish what Christ is calling us to do. And, you know, even Dr. Martin Luther King longed for that beloved community where people would do the right thing, not only because of the law, but because it's the right thing to do. But I think one of the unique things that the church brings to our efforts with regard to racism is that I think the church is in the unique position to call for a change of human hearts. And that ultimately will get us where Jesus wants us to be. I I love to hear that. And I keep thinking this conversion of heart. Easy to say, right? <laughs> Not so easy to do. And that we all have a role to play in accepting and converting and having this conversion of heart. And speaking of that, I'm thinking, you know, it's been about, what, two years since the release of the pastoral on racism. So I'm Wondering what's next for the Ad Hoc Committee on Racism. I know there were, you know, people wanted certain things to be maybe less comforting to certain segments of the population that read the pastoral and racism and maybe felt that the pastoral letter could have maybe helped with that conversion by maybe pricking the consciences of people, particularly white Catholics, who maybe had been ensnared in this particular sin. So I'm wondering, with all of that has been said about the pastoral statement, all that's been done with the listening session, I'm hoping you could share what are some of the things that are going to come up next for the ad hoc committee. Sure. Unfortunately, the pandemic interrupted us, but we will pick up the listening sessions again. We are working with college campus ministries. Mm to integrate teachings on against the evil and sin of racism on college campuses. We are working with seminaries and houses of formation so that they will be preparing priests and religious who will be adequately prepared and comfortable talking about the evil and the sin of racism. So those are our two focuses. We hope to pick up the listening sessions. Again, we are continuing to be involved, you know, in policy with USCCB, looking at uh, policymaking with regard to how that can be used to end racism. But certainly education will be a focus that we have, particularly education of young people in colleges and seminaries and houses of formation. And then continuing to try and lift up the pastoral letter, encouraging people to read it and to move it forward, you know, in their parish. I want to lift up the resources for the pastoral letter that are found on the USCCB website. There's a study guide for the pastoral letter, you know, getting together in groups to discuss it and people in that way can move it forward. So those are some of the things that we are involved in at this time and will continue to be involved in into the future. I'm so happy to hear that there's something being done in seminaries 
because it seemed like that had been an area that wasn't necessarily getting the kind of attention it should get within seminaries. I myself won't say which seminary it was, but I was invited to come and talk at a seminary to talk about racism. And then it just sort of evaporated. The invitation evaporated and things went forward in a way that was so strange to me. But I understood that there had been some grumbling, if you will, around the discussion. And so I'm curious, just because you yourself, obviously, Your Excellency, had gone through seminary. What would you say was the difference then in terms of discussing racism in the seminary as a part of forming men for the priesthood versus what you're hoping will be accomplished now with talking about racism in seminaries? Well, I think today, men in seminary and men and women in formation to be consecrated religious are going to be ministering in a church that is racially and culturally diverse. So mm-hmm. I think that the context has changed today. And I think that you have to be prepared as a priest or as a religious or even as a lay minister to minister in a church that is culturally diverse. So I think when I was in the seminary, the church was becoming racially diverse. Mm. Now the church is more racially diverse. And so I think that men and women who are going to be ministering the church have to be prepared to deal with a multicultural and racially diverse church. And I think that is why it's very important today that we do this in seminaries and in houses of formation. Yeah, I mean, I think the church in the United States is more racially diverse. The global church is primarily not a church that's white or Western. I mean, it is a church of color. And I do see that having an impact on what the church in the United States is going to look like if you consider immigration and things like that, that we're going to have a more racially diverse church in the United States. And we need to be prepared for that and understand the church isn't somehow being lost, you know, But it's just the face of the church is changing, maybe for people in the United States. But globally, it is a church of color. I guess before we leave, I'm just curious as to what your hopes and expectations are for Louisville, for your archdiocese. I think my hope and dreams for Louisville is that we will become in Louisville what Jesus Christ is calling us to be. I don't deny that there's a lot of pain there with regard to racial division and hurt. You know, I think at the very root of it, racism is a denial of the human dignity of another person. And I do hope that together, we can become the church that Jesus Christ is calling us to be. And to say, you know, as you said, the church is not being lost with all of our diversity. We are becoming more and more what Jesus calls us to be, which is Mm. brothers and sisters in Christ, each with our own unique cultural and racial gifts. And we bring all of that to the one body of Christ. So it is my prayer that, In Louisville, we will pray together. It is my prayer in Louisville that we will accompany one another. It is my prayer in Louisville that we will act together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's my simple prayer that in Louisville, we can more and more become the church that Jesus Christ is calling us to be. And the way that we do that 
is by each and every one of us becoming the disciple that Jesus Christ calls us to be. Amen. How beautiful. I just, I'm so excited for you. I'm so happy for the people of the Archdiocese of Louisville. And as a Black Catholic woman, I can just tell you that your appointment means so much to so many of us. And to see you there, we are praying for you. We are happy. We are celebrating that one of our own is the Archbishop of Kentucky. And I really hope that more and more of us will see you and be reminded that there's a place here in Jesus's church for all of us. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you very much, Gloria. I will count on your prayers and I'll count yes. on the prayers of your listeners as I move to this new ministry that Jesus Christ has called me to. But I thank you for your interest and I thank you for the opportunity to be a part of your program. Thank you for joining us. This is such an important conversation and you're such an important voice. And I'm so thankful you were able to join me today. Thank you, Your Excellency. Thank you very much. I am so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member. And be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Oh, could you leave us a review if you can? I would love to hear from you. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and Maggie Van Dorn. It's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.